Faith, hope, and love. These three are what our Lord Jesus Christ wants to see in our hearts, individually, as a group, and all across the nations, everywhere the church exists, God is looking for faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the end goal of everything that God is doing in redemption. Catch that. Love is the end goal of everything that God is doing in redemption. Why has God revealed himself to us? Why has God sent Jesus Christ into the world to be the savior? Was it that we needed to be kept out of hell? Even more than that. The purpose of all of God's salvation is to create a people who know how to love with the kind of love that exists in the heart of God. I know this because God says it. Not something that I've reasoned my way to philosophically. It's something that Jesus Christ makes abundantly clear in his words and his teaching to the disciples. And then the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, repeatedly emphasize and teach and make clear that love is the end goal. As we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you are well taught in Bible doctrine and have amazing discernment to be able to tell the difference between truth and error, but if you don't have love, you've missed the whole point. It's important for us to be reminded of this message and that's why the scripture comes back to it time and time again and why then therefore as we teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter in the Bible, we come back to this great theme time and again. Beloved, love one another the way that you have been loved. That's the heart of the message from God this morning. May we all have ears to hear what the Spirit of God says on this great theme. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two. We've been looking into the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation, the message of Christ to them regarding the faith, the hope, and the love that he is looking for. We've received this letter, short messages from the Lord Jesus Christ to each one of the seven churches on this subject. And as we've begun looking into chapter two, we focused on faith, first of all. And that the faith of the churches, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, that they were being tested. And that they were being tested even to the point of death as Antipas had been killed in those days because of his testimony, because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our faith is tested from without. Through the persecution that Satan stirs up in the world, against those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan's purpose in opposing the church and testing the church's faith is to intimidate us so that we no longer follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead are just looking out for our own safety and our own well-being and our own best interests. That's the test of our faith, that it comes from without. But when the church stands true and faithful under persecution, we find that often it fails to stand true against the internal testing of the faith where false teachers sneak in to the church 
and they start to secretly introduce destructive heresies, as the Apostle Jude wrote in his short letter. And so this infiltration of Satan into the church is designed to lead us away from Christ without us even realizing that we're walking away from Christ because we have a false Christ and a different spirit that is not what is here revealed in the New Testament. So beware of Satan's attacks from the outside. Stand strong like we were singing this morning. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But also be on guard against the more subtle sneak attacks of the enemy as he sends his spies to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ and lead us astray through bad example and through false teaching. This morning, though, we're going to move on from our discussion of the testing of our faith to the subject of love in the seven churches. I'd like to introduce that subject by taking a look at a contrast of two churches. One is Ephesus. We haven't yet talked about Ephesus, but it is the first one in chapter two to receive a letter from the Lord. Seven verses there. And then we're going to compare and contrast the words of Jesus Christ to the church in Ephesus with the church in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira is the opposite of the church in Ephesus in its strengths and in its weaknesses. Here's Thyatira, the smallest of the seven cities, Ephesus, the largest of the seven, and the strongest point in Ephesus is the weakest point in Thyatira. The strongest point in Thyatira is the weakest point in Ephesus. These two churches are basically mirror images of each other in their strengths and weaknesses. I wonder if we could go back in time and talk to the Christians in Thyatira, what was their opinion of the church at Ephesus? And if we went back and talked to the Christians in Ephesus, what was their opinion of the church in Thyatira? Because they're not that far apart. They probably knew of each other and they probably had some correspondence. And as is so sadly, so often the case and sad. We often compare our strengths against other people's weaknesses, and we might even compare our weaknesses against other people's strengths. Now, the former is a problem, because when we compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses, we get an imbalanced picture. We start to get an overinflated opinion of ourselves, and we think, oh, well, look how good I am in my strength compared to these people who are so weak in this. But We can also do the opposite. We can compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths and say, oh, I wish that I was more like them. I wish I had what they had. And we can become self-pitying. We can become envious. And we want to beware of measuring ourselves by others. But instead, what we want to do is what the scripture commands us to do is measure ourselves by Christ. And wherever we are Christ-like, we can be encouraged. And wherever we are not Christ-like, we need to change and grow. So instead of comparing and contrasting ourselves with one another, we need to be always looking to Christ and pursuing his perfection and his glory. But the church in Ephesus, it had the strength of being a church that was standing strong against the threat of false teaching. So you see Ephesus here, it is praised for having a strong faith. Now, I want to explain why faith is in several different colors here. The faith that is in the lighter blue, that indicates that they were faithful against persecution. They were faithful against the threat of intimidation. And we already saw in chapter two how both Smyrna and Pergamum were faithful in light of the persecution that Satan was stirring up against them. Ephesus is faithful in that second way. 
that as Satan tried to infiltrate the church with false teaching, they recognized it and they rejected the false teaching and so they were faithful in that way. And we see that there's one church that is commended for that, but there's two churches that are blamed for not doing a good job of standing against false teaching. Last week, we looked at Pergamum and Thyatira and how they had failed in this area of tolerating false teaching. They were tolerating what they should not have been tolerating, and so Christ had to rebuke the churches for not being faithful doctrinally. And then that, of course, issues into the life that they lived as well. They were immoral in their practices because of the false doctrine that had infiltrated the church. Ephesus is the opposite. Ephesus has the strength that Thyatira was lacking and Pergamum was lacking also. But notice that Ephesus is blamed for a lack of love, whereas Thyatira is praised for its love. So the praise here is the blame here. The blame here is the praise here. They're opposites, they're mirror images. And so we're going to be taking a look at Ephesus and Thyatira in regard specifically to the love that Christ calls us to. Now, you might notice that I have two hands. I think you also have two hands. And God has given us two hands so that we can hold on to two things at once, right? And the two things that we need to hold on to this morning is faith and love you'll find churches like Ephesus that are doctrinally pure, doctrinally strong, and they're holding on to that with both hands, but they don't really know how to love one another. They don't really know how to love other Christians very well. They're so busy about criticizing the false teachers that they forget that the purpose of good teaching is that we might love one another sincerely from the heart. Other churches are so busy loving and doing good deeds and serving, they've got both hands full of love, that they're just letting everything into the church and they're not being discerning at all doctrinally. Well, I want you to have one hand holding on to faithfulness to doctrine and one hand, your right hand, even stronger, holding on to love. Because if we don't have love, we don't have anything. Doesn't matter how discerning we are and faithful to the doctrine of Scripture if we don't have the love that is the point of that doctrine. So, I wanted to show you this chart. You'll see where we're going here in the future. We haven't yet got to chapter 3 with Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, where two of the churches have no praise and a lot of blame here going around for Laodicea. And so we'll get to those focusing on hope. You see our hope focus is coming up. But right now we've been focusing on faith and now we're moving into love here with Ephesus and Thyatira. So let's talk a little bit about the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the largest, as I said, of these seven cities and it was a flourishing city at this time. It was 10 centuries old, an ancient city, a tourist center, economic center, religious center, artistic center. They had the Pan-Ionian games that were going on there, so it was an athletic center as well. Basically, your big city in Asia Minor, one of the largest cities in the world at that time. Paul, therefore, made a point of spending a significant amount of time in Ephesus because of its strategic importance in the spread of the gospel in those early days. And Paul spent two years in Ephesus teaching in the school of Tyrannus, establishing a church in Ephesus, and then through that, the gospel spread throughout all of Asia Minor. So we don't have a record of how the church started in all of these cities, but we know that Paul started the church in Ephesus and that from Ephesus, all of Asia here was hearing the word of God. So many of these churches probably began as a result of Paul's ministry from Ephesus. 
and the word of God spreading out from that key central point. And so we have the letter to the Ephesians. We have Paul ministering there. We have Priscilla and Aquila ministering there. We have Timothy ministering there. The letters of Paul to Timothy were while Timothy was in Ephesus. John later moved to Ephesus and probably lived there for several decades. And so this was a very important early church. And here it receives the first message as Patmos is just off the map right over here, a little island, and the the boat would come over from John with the message, starting in Ephesus and following the messengers, stopping at their own cities until finally the last messenger arrives at Laodicea. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, now that you know what our big idea here is this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the praise that Jesus Christ has for this church is the opposite of the problem we looked at last week. We got into the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. We saw how the Nicolaitans were making bad disciples there in the church in Pergamum and that the church wasn't opposing the Nicolaitans as they should. We saw that Jezebel had a similar kind of false teaching at the church in Thyatira, which the church was sinfully tolerating and that Christ himself was going to come and deal with Jezebel and her followers. And so as the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were failing, the church in Ephesus was not. It was commended by the Lord Jesus Christ for this toil and endurance, this intolerance. You cannot bear with those who are evil. There is an intolerance that Christ praises in the church, and that is when we do the work of testing teachers to find out whether they are true or whether they are false. The church in Ephesus tested those who called themselves apostles and were not, and they found them to be false. The New Testament tells us, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, like you can read about in Jeremiah's book, so there will also be false teachers who come in among you. Our job in being faithful to the Lord is to test teachers and find out whether or not they are genuine men of the word or whether or not they are servants of the flesh. This test is important and vital, but it's not our focus this morning. This morning, we're going to focus on the condemnation, the blame that Christ has for the church in Ephesus. This isn't to take away anything from the commendation. The commendation is true. The commendation is real. It is an indication of what we need to be. And it reminds me, let's see, go to this verse, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Paul commended the Thessalonian church for their work of faith. 
The work of faith is what Jesus Christ is commending in verse two. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. That's the work of faith, being faithful against the infiltration of false teaching. But, Jesus says in verse four, I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So they didn't have the labor of love. So they have a work of faith, but they don't have the labor of love. Or if they do, it's decreasing. It's less than it was. And we'll get to hope in a, in a few weeks here. So here we are in Ephesus, the lampstand in Ephesus. They're defending the faith by testing teachers, apostles. And they're hating the evil of the Nicolaitans. Notice that Christ ends the letter with that encouragement, after he rebukes them in verses four and five, he reminds them of his encouragement, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, many Christians would have a, a hard time understanding why Jesus would hate something, and the word hate has a connotation in our society that Christians think, well, God doesn't hate. There's no hatred in God. Well, God does hate, according to the biblical definition of the word hate. So often we get confused because we think that hate means malice and that it's an inherent evil. And we learned this from Star Wars, you know, the dark side of the force is, is hatred. But we don't want to import the worldly philosophy into our Christian understanding that to hate evil is a good moral attribute and that we should also hate evil. But to hate evil is not enough. Though God does hate evil, and you can read about it in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, or Psalm 5, verses 4 and 6, and hundreds of other places in the Bible where God describes his hatred of evil, it's not enough for us to hate evil, but we must also love the good. Let me put it this way. If we filled the church this morning with mannequins, we would look like we had a full church and you know, one of the benefits of filling the church with mannequins, as opposed to all of us, is mannequins don't have any sin. A mannequin has never had an evil thought this week. A mannequin isn't sitting there nursing pride and having a grudge against someone else. And so we could have a church full of no sin if we just replaced all of us with mannequins. But God doesn't want a church full of just no sin. He wants a church that is full of righteousness, a church that is full of goodness, a church that is full of love, and those are things that a mannequin cannot do. And so it is not enough to not do evil, but God is creating a people who are positively pursuing good, good deeds, deeds of love, love for God, love for one another. So let's look a little closer at the failure of the church in Ephesus, that they were decreasing in their love. Look again at verse four. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, and now the Spirit of God says it to us here this morning, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, when I say that the Spirit of God is speaking this to us here this morning, I'm not saying that you necessarily are decreasing in love. But if you are decreasing in love, then the Spirit of God is speaking this to you. And if you are increasing in love, then the Spirit of God is warning you against the danger of decreasing in your deeds of love. Notice that love is measured in deeds. Jesus Christ said, 
You have abandoned the love you had at first, and the cure for this is a repentance that leads to the works you did at first. Love is measured in deeds. The Bible says in 1 John, let us love in deed and truth, not in words. And so we can get up here and I can tell you how much I love you and how wonderful you are, as I sometimes do tell you how much I love you. And I can tell my wife how much I love her and how wonderful and precious she is to me, but it's our deeds that really are the measurement of our love, even more than our words. Sadly the case, we often profess more love in our words than we show in our actions. And so we need to do the deeds of love. Jesus began the letter in verse two by saying, I know your works. And their deeds of faith were good, but their deeds of love were flagging. They were failing. They were waning in that most vital, most important part. And so when you see the threat that comes in verse five, that if you do not repent, if you do not increase in good works, that Christ will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Do you know what that means? That means that there will no longer be a church at Ephesus. The church will die, the church will go away. Christ says, if you miss out on love, if you continue to let the fire of love die down among you, well then you've missed the whole point and I don't even want a church there. I don't care how good your doctrinal statement is, if you're not increasing in love, you've missed the whole point. You're not functioning for the purpose for which I have created you and therefore I will remove the lampstand. And this happens to a lot of churches. People wonder, why do churches die? Well, there's a lot of reasons why churches die. But one reason that is told us right here, churches die because they stop loving one another. Leading cause of death, perhaps, among churches, lack of deeds of love that is coming from a heart that is purified by God's word. 1 Timothy 1.5. This is the theme verse for my ministry. My mom named me Timothy probably because this is gonna be the theme verse of my ministry. God knew it all. The aim of our charge, I'm up here charging you, you know? You come to church and you don't just get a, a feel-good message, but you get a charge, like a commandment with authority. And the charge that comes is not from me, it's from God. He gave it to the apostles and the apostles wrote it down and he then entrusts it to the shepherds of the church, the teachers, and the charge is love. The aim of the charge, the goal of the charge. We're gonna talk more about what love is. We'll get to that. But notice how central, how important it is the end goal. The aim is love. And where does love come from? Well, it comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now we showed the chart earlier about the faith. A sincere faith that is not intimidated by the world, that is not infiltrated by false teaching. That sincere faith, the, the doctrine that we're standing upon, the truth that we believe, it has a goal, it has a purpose. And that purpose is to produce love. If it's not reaching the goal and the purpose, it's useless, like we read in 1 Corinthians 13. I can't overstate the importance of love and growing in love for one another. The Bible says it is first of all. It issues not only from a sincere faith, but also a good conscience. This is the problem with the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were teaching people to eat food sacrificed to idols, that is to participate in idolatry. 
and to commit acts of immorality. That wounds the conscience. It makes an impure heart. And so when people go astray in the doctrine, they start teaching a lifestyle that is contrary to a pure heart and a good conscience, and what that does is it stains the soul, it twists the soul, so that it no longer is able to produce a divine love. It has its own worldly counterfeit of love. There's a profession of love, but it's not the love that is in the heart of God, the love that is in truth, the love that is from this sincere faith and this good conscience and the purity of heart. You have to keep your heart pure. You have to keep a good conscience. Otherwise, you will not be able to love the way that God wants you to love. But it's not enough just to have a good conscience and a pure heart if it's not leading to those deeds of love. Very, very important to see the plan. Here's the plan. It lays it all out for us. And that's just one verse out of very many. Well, the fire on the altar of the heart, which is love, the fire is love, it was going out in the church at Ephesus. And if they didn't stoke that fire up again, if they didn't get the love of God burning hot and zealously amongst themselves, it would be the end of the church. Now, gladly, we know from church history that this was not the end of the church. We have a letter from Ignatius not long later that shows us that the church at Ephesus had heeded this exhortation, that they had repented, and that they had done deeds of love. And church history shows us that for hundreds of years after this, the church continued to exist in Ephesus until finally this area was overrun by the Muslims. And there is no city of Ephesus, there is no church in Ephesus today. But for hundreds of years, they did continue. And so we know that Christ's message here was heeded by the church. Wonderful to have that encouragement. Now, not only does 1 Timothy 1.5 teach us about the importance of love, but also John chapter 15, verse 12. The last night that Jesus was here with his disciples, us basically, before he was crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended, he gave his final message to his disciples. Out of all the teaching that he had given them, he says, I can boil down my teaching, my commandments to one single message that you must keep in mind. If you forget everything else, never forget this. When you're examining yourself as a Christian, you're wondering if you're doing well, this is the number one thing you wanna look at and say, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So as Christ looks into our hearts this morning, as he looks at the church as a whole, does he see a church that is increasing in deeds of love for one another? As he looks into your heart, individually, does he see there a zeal, a fire, in order to love and serve others the way that Christ has loved you? And is it producing actions in your life where you're actually taking the time to go and love others and meet other people's needs or are you just coming to church? Now some of you are very encouraging to me and you come to church and you're just looking for ways that you can serve and minister and love. Some of you I worry about because you come to church and you sit and listen and, and I don't see it. Now maybe... You know, you're doing things that I don't see, and that's great. I don't have to see everything. I don't have to know everything. But Christ sees everything, and Christ knows everything. And what good deeds has the Holy Spirit laid on your heart that you said, maybe later? I'm kind of busy right now. I got other priorities. 
What people around you that God wants you to love and serve, and you've been like, eh, I don't know. I don't think it would be very fun. There's other things I can do. I can show my love for God in other ways. So you don't have to do my good deeds. I don't have to do your good deeds. You have to do the good deeds of love that God has assigned to you. He's made you a certain way. He's given you certain abilities. He's given you opportunities. He's given you a personality. He's given you talents. And what are you doing with what he has given you to do this? Because this is your purpose. This is your goal. This is what he's gonna judge you on. You're gonna stand before him. He's gonna evaluate your life. And this is his standard. Did you love one another the way that I loved you? Come with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22 says this. Having purified your souls, stop there for a moment, purified your souls, look at that, a pure heart. God purifies your soul from sin by your obedience to the truth, this sincere faith in the truth. For is the purpose. That little word for is an important word. You've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a purpose. And what is that purpose? A sincere brotherly love. A sincere brotherly love. Not just words, but deeds that show the heart. Therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A pure heart, notice that again, from a pure heart. It's the same spirit, same wisdom, same plan. You've got to be pure in your heart. And that purity of heart is supposed to lead to the zealous, sincere, fervent love for one another. If somebody looks at your life, well, they say, there's someone who is fervent in serving the church. Or will they say, there's somebody that hangs around the church. There's somebody who is served by the church. Now, it's great to hang around the church. It's great to be served by the church. But you won't get a reward for that. You get a reward for serving the church. Love one another earnestly. I like that. Earnestly. Timothy, are you loving people earnestly? Or are you just kind of coasting along? Saying, ah, oh, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm maintaining the standard of love. I'm not losing love. I'm not really growing in love. Don't be satisfied with that. Do I have a purpose in life? Do I have meaning? Something that drives me? The purpose that God gives, the meaning that God gives. To be increasing, to be earnest, to be zealous. Stirring up good works. You know, we get together on a Sunday morning. What's it supposed to be? A good works rally. We're supposed to be here showing examples, showing encouragement. Here's the loving works that Christ is calling us to do and I'm doing it for you and I'm encouraging you to do the good works that God has given you to do. That's what God is pleased with on a Sunday morning. We're getting together and we're just increasing and encouraging and showing one another and more and more love, more and more love. It's right to hate sin, but hating sin is not enough. We must also love righteousness and be pursuing it as service to one another. The Bible says, as you have opportunity, do good to all men. You woke up today and you got opportunities. Look at life as an opportunity. It's a gift that God gives you. 
And the opportunity that God gives you is to serve others, to love others, whether they're Christians or not. God gives you opportunity to love everyone around you in your life. Look at that as an opportunity. Be rich in good works. Live your life in such a way that all of the opportunities you have to love other people, you're taking those opportunities and making the most of them. And you will be blessed. You'll be spiritually rich now and for all eternity. You can believe it because that's what God teaches. Don't look at your life as an opportunity just to do what you feel like doing. But look at your life as an opportunity to love and serve others. So sadly, often we are just known for what we're against in our circles. We're a discerning church, a biblical church, you know, doctrinally pure. And sometimes that can be our mark. And people are like, oh yeah, that's the church that's always talking about what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. They're like, well, it's good to have that. That's not what we should be known for most of all. If I want our church to be known for anything, I want it to be a church of people who are just always doing good for each other and for everyone that we have an opportunity to do good to. I went to a seminar years ago at the seminary that I went to and graduated from, went back, and they had a a seminar on 16 trends in theology and hermeneutics. All 16 were bad. I thought, well, that's interesting. Nothing good happening in theology, apparently, in the world. Uh, Everything's bad. And so we got to be careful that we don't get that mindset. You know, it's like, oh, that's bad, and that's bad, and that's bad. I don't like that, and I don't like that. It's good to not like those things that are bad. But what do you like? What's good? What are you excited about? What drives you? Where's your passion? Hopefully it's not just hating evil, but your passion is loving good. I'm not saying don't hate evil. Do. Hate evil. You don't want abortion running rampant in the culture. You don't want libraries reading immoral books to children with immoral people setting the example. You don't want divorces, and you don't want all kinds of evil in the church and false teaching. That's good. Good to be against all those things. That's not enough. You know, we got opportunities coming up for you to show your zeal for good works. Got the Todd Becker Foundations coming to Norris High School, and they're going to share the gospel. And we need volunteers, people who will show up and talk with young people about their need for Jesus Christ. That's you. That's why God saved you. That's why you're here. The command to all Christians is to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. These kids are looking for hope, and you've got hope. And God has given you hope so that you can go and share that hope with others. And he says, don't worry about it, what you're going to say. Don't be afraid. Oh, I'm going to mess up. I won't be able to say it as well as someone else will. I should let other people go and do that. No. That's what everybody thinks. Anybody who doesn't think that way is overconfident and a fool. You are the saints. You are the ones that God has put the hope in. You are the ones that God is calling to be zealous for love. And if you won't volunteer, then what are we doing? What are we doing? God might as well take away our lampstand. You have opportunities to show hospitality. A team of evangelists is coming here. Are you zealous for good works? Or are you saying, well, it's inconvenient. I am antisocial. They want to stay with someone else. That's not zeal for love and good deeds. You should be beating down Karen's door to host. That sign-up sheet should be filled. 
What are we doing? Are we just talk? Or are we zealous for good deeds? Look at the opposite church back in Revelation. Thyatira. It's the kind of church that I would look down on. Christ says in chapter 2, verse 19 of Revelation, I know your works. Same thing he said to the Ephesian church. I know your works. Your love. That's the first thing he says about the church in Thyatira. You've got love and faith and service and patient endurance. Love and service go closely hand in hand. How did Christ love us? He served us. And that your latter works exceed the first. What is Christ looking for? He's looking for an increase in deeds of love. And what does the church of Thyatira have? They've got an increase in good works. And Christ praises and commends that in the church. Now they have a problem. They've got Jezebel and they tolerate her. And that's why I would look down on that church. But maybe the church at Thyatira has something to teach me. Some humility. That knowing all mysteries and having sound doctrinal statement isn't all there is to being a Christian. You know, A.W. Tozer said, right opinion is a very small part of true spirituality. Right opinion is a very small part of true spirituality. Good, you've got all the right opinions. What are you doing? Right? Now, it's a vital part, but it is a small part. The big part is the deeds of love. That's true spirituality. That's what the church of Thyatira had. And that's why Christ says to this church in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast what you have. What do they have? They have love. They have service. They have an increase. And Christ says, hold on to that. Hold on tight. Now, many of you have love. I see it. And Christ sees it. And Christ knows it. My message to you is hold on to that. Christ's message to you, I should say, is hold on to that. And continue to set an example for the rest of us. And for the rest of us, look at the example of those who are fervent and zealous in their loving deeds and imitate that. Say, I want to be more like that. I want to be inspired and encouraged by that. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and told them, nobody needs to write to you about loving one another because you are loving one another. I encourage you just to do it all the more. If that's you, that's the word of Christ. That's what you need to hear this morning. Keep on doing what you're doing, like he said to the church of Thyatira. But if you look at your life and you say, well, I'm not really using my spiritual gift. I'm not really looking for opportunities to serve. God lays people on my heart and I just put it off and then the opportunity passes and then sooner or later, you know, it doesn't get done. I'm too late now. If that's you, then you need to hear what Christ is saying this morning. And he says, repent. There's a lot of repentance preached in these letters to the churches and there's a lot of repentance that needs to be done in the churches and and among us. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Get back to the main thing. I wanted you also to see a verse here in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 as well. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we have this wonderful introduction to the Christian life and how we're supposed to be growing as Christians. 
He talks about how God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so in light of all of the wonderful gifts that God has given to us through his promises, it says in verse five that we are to make every effort. How much effort are we putting into our Christian life, into our Christian faith? He doesn't say put some effort. He says make every effort. And that's not me again. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through the apostles. You are to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Because you gotta have a pure heart and a good conscience. Virtue, that's where it starts. Purify yourself from all the sin and all the evil. Hate the evil. Good, get rid of it. Don't have any of it in your life and in your heart. No secret sin. Have a virtuous life. And in your virtue, you're gonna increase in knowledge. That you'll know God, really, not just in profession, but a personal fellowship with God as a result of the virtue that springs from the faith that God has given to us. And then with that knowledge, we're gonna have self-control. And with self-control, we're going to make every effort to supply steadfastness. So we continue on and keep on and don't give up like Christ was commending the churches in Revelation. And in your steadfastness, you need to supply godliness. And in your godliness, you supply brotherly affection. And with brotherly affection, you're making every effort to supplement it with love. And love, you're supposed to supplement with nothing because love is the goal. Love is the end. All these other things build up towards love. You see, love is the goal. If you lack these qualities, you are blind, short-sighted, forgotten, you're cleansing from sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. But if you don't practice these qualities, you will fall, and your church will die, just like Jesus told the church in Ephesus. So let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of loving one another. Turn with me to Philippians chapter two, verses one through five. As you measure yourself with the yardstick of love, what does love look like? How has Christ loved us? How does the New Testament exhort us to practically love? Well, notice what it says here at the beginning of Philippians chapter two, that because of our encouragement in Christ and our participation with the Holy Spirit, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to maintain the same love. May the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me from day to day. His power and love controlling all that I do and say. So we must be Christ-like with Christ's love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Yeah, it's good that you are not involved with idolatry. It's good that you have sound doctrine. But what are you doing with that? Are you being selfish? Are you being ambitious? Are you being conceited? Or are you humbly serving others, counting them more significant than yourself? Are you spending time thinking about how to look out for other people's interests? Or are you so consumed with your own interests that you don't have any time to think about others? Looking out for the interests of others, caring for others, meeting the needs of others. That's what we're talking about here. These are the deeds of love. One way this is done is through giving. 
Some of you have the gift of giving. Some of you are wonderful examples, constantly giving to others. That's your ministry, that's your strength, that's what God has given you to do, and you're doing it. But even if you don't have the gift of giving, it doesn't mean you can't give, and you shouldn't be looking for opportunities to give. But whenever you see the opportunity to give, you have a generous heart, and you're ready to give. Whether it's a pressing need, or whether it's just something nice. Whether it's a necessity of life, or whether it's just a way to say, I care about you, and I'm thinking about you. Giving. Another way, Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, wouldn't we all like to be called that? That's the heart of love, serving Christ, love through service. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Prayer. To love others is to pray for others. You know, I pray for myself. I'm sure to pray about the things that are on my heart and my needs. How good am I at praying for others? How much time do I spend praying for my wife, my children, my church members, my neighbor, my friends, my family? How much you love can often be measured in your prayers. How much for yourself, how much for others. You can work hard in prayer for others as Christ works hard in prayer for us. Another way is to use your spiritual gift. We won't turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11 says, each one of you has received a special gift. Use it, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a Sunday school leader. But whatever it is that God has given you to do in order to serve the church, do it. Do it zealously. Don't wait to be asked. Just go and do That's love. That's fervency. That's what we are called to. Use your spiritual gift. So you're giving. You're looking out for others' needs. You're doing that through prayer. You're doing that through your spiritual gift of ministering in the church. And then you're showing hospitality. 1 Peter 4 9, in that same context as the spiritual gift, talks about how we're supposed to show hospitality to one another. Open up your home for workers of the gospel, like the Todd Becker Foundation. Open up your home for one another. Invite people over for dinner and let them see your home at Lord's Night. Host a Lord's Night. Just have them over for lunch. That's one way to show love. And then one I also want to highlight here, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Back up from Colossians 4 to chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what it says here. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So that you got this pure heart, you're holy, And as God has purified you, as Peter says, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Is that how you treat your fellow Christians? When you're having a disagreement with a fellow Christian, when a fellow Christian has offended you, are you kind? Are you humble? Are you meek? Are you patient? Notice verse 13, bearing with one another. How does our church do at bearing with one another? I mean, we're 
going to step on each other's toes. We're going to offend each other. We're gonna disagree on things. How good are you at bearing with those that you disagree with? How good are you are forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you? God never promised you that you weren't gonna get sinned against in church. You are gonna be sinned against. You are gonna be wronged. Expect it and be ready to forgive the way the Lord has forgiven you. You might say, oh, I've forgiven, but uh, you know, I, just, I just don't really wanna be there anymore. Is that how Christ forgave you? Christ says, well, I forgive you, but I really don't wanna spend any time with you anymore. You can just kinda go away. No, that's not how the Lord forgives us. He forgives you and he treats you like his brother. He has closest fellowship with you. He calls you to walk with him and he walks beside you. Can you do that with Christians who offend you? If we don't, close the doors. We don't need this pulpit if we're not gonna love each other. That's the message of Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. They listened to it, they repented, and they did the deeds of love. Let us also hear what the Spirit says to the churches and love one another fervently from the heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're the one who sees into the hearts of each one of us. You know whether or not we are hating sin. You know whether or not we are purifying our hearts, whether we're pursuing that godliness and that self-control that comes from the faith that is in Jesus Christ. But most of all, Lord, you know whether or not we are truly loving one another or if we just tell ourselves that we're loving one another. We ask you, Father, to open up our hearts clearly to us, shine a light so that we can see where we are failing to do what you have called us to do, to love the way that you've called us to love. And Lord God, when you give us opportunities, as you will, to serve one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, Lord, we promise you, we will take those opportunities. We will repent of procrastination and selfishness and laziness. And we will stoke up the fire of the love of God in Christ Jesus so that this lampstand can be burning bright with holy love. We know that is your will and we hear what you've said and we respond from our hearts. Amen.